0: Welcome to Rose Tinted, a podcast where we challenge the limits of our nostalgia by re-examining some of our favourite childhood movies. I'm Ollie Chip. And I'm Paddy HK. And today we'll be discussing The NeverEnding Story.
1: You know those days where you feel like absolute trash and uh, nothing will really improve your mood other than deconstructing incredibly strange movies from your childhood? I've heard of those days, yeah. Well, I think we're in luck, Ollie, because this might just be one of those days. Yeah, I think you might be right. <laughs> yes. But before we get into that, I do need to give a little bit of background info about this podcast to anyone who may not have heard it before. So Ollie and I are old friends who decided to make a list of our favourite childhood movies so we could revisit them one by one to see if they still hold up to scrutiny. Some loose rules for our selection process, the movies have to bear some kind of significance to our childhood or early adolescence, and we try to only select movies that we have not watched since that time. So, without further ado, Ollie, why don't you tell us a little bit about The never-ending story? story. <laughs> Thank God it ended. That's all I'm <laughs> going to say. I thought I'd get that one in now.
0: Straight out of the gate. Straight out of the <laughs> gate with the harsh criticisms. Interesting. Released in 1984. Yeah. Um, it was actually one of the most it was the most expensive film made outside of the US or Soviet Union at the time. Mm. Which I thought was incredible. 60 million. It cost in Deutschmark, I believe? Yeah. Which is roughly 26-ish million dollars. And that doesn't seem like very much, actually. No. I don't know how you
1: feel about that. No, I don't think it does. But then if you think about it, the German film industry was hardly thriving at the time. Yeah. This is still pre-fall of the Berlin Wall. So this is a presumably West German production. Yes, it is. That's correct. Yeah. So apart from Das Boot, which was also directed by Wolfgang Peterson, who is the director of this movie, apart from Das Mm -hmm. Boot, I couldn't tell you of a single German movie from around this era that had a massive impact outside of that country. Mm -hmm. I
0: mean, my knowledge of German cinema is limited, I will be honest with you, but Mm -hmm. um, he's sort of like a popular international German filmmaker. Yeah. Who's made a four-hour movie about a submarine and then this, like, strange kids movie about fantasy worlds and dragons and fuck knows what.
1: Yeah. I actually think Wolfgang Petersen is one of uh, Germany's biggest exports in terms of the film industry. The only other notable director that I can immediately think of would be Werner Herzog.
0: Yeah, and there was obviously um, F.W. Murnau who did... Nosferatu way back when yeah. in the sort of like 1920s and 30s it was a big Hollywood name Yeah, but yeah the, outside of Germany and Europe German directors don't tend to really be household names do they? Mm. So yeah Das Boot and The NeverEnding Story are staples of German filmmaking Yes. interestingly it didn't do particularly well on the American market this film and mm-hmm. it's probably down to those sort of European well the directors called them those European sensibilities in the film. Interesting Okay. Which I can see. Um, it did really well in Germany. Mm-hmm. So it did well domestically, but didn't do very well on the American market. Uh, it grossed 100 million worldwide. Okay. Which is, which is you know, not bad. It stars Noah Hathaway and Barrett Oliver, who are the two sort of child protagonists. And I'll say this now, I'm not, as you know, Paddy, a very big fan of child protagonists mm-hmm. in movies. But these
1: two did an okay job. Yeah, they did. I think uh, Bastion...
0: I think that's Barrett Oliver, I think, played Bastion.
1: Yeah, the child who reads the book, the actual book, the never-ending story in the movie. I thought his performance was really solid all the way through, to be honest with you. Do you know that character's full name is Bastion Balthazar? bucks i did not know that this film is getting more german by the second (laughs) (laughs) so yeah that's that would you like my synopsis yes please start me off with your back of the box synopsis
0: please bastian has lost his mother and to make matters worse he is being ruthlessly bullied by his peers at school lucky for bastian he has a vivid imagination and a taste for fantasy literature he seeks solace one day in a mysterious book the never-ending story. It's a wonderful tale of strange characters that inhabit the epic landscapes of Fantasia, but perhaps most wonderful of all is Bastion's imagination and the impact it has on the fate of Fantasia
1: itself. Mm, Very good, very good. I like that a lot.
0: And my one-liner, fever dream of puppets, horses dying, and medium (laughs) close-ups. Yeah, yeah,
1: very true. (laughs) Very, very, very true. Yeah, it is a feverish movie. I think that's a really good word to describe it. It is very dreamlike like in a lot of ways. Deliberately so, I think. No, yeah, definitely. And I think it's done to varying degrees of effectiveness, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go a little bit further along. But why did this movie make the list today, Ollie? Well, I'll be honest with you. This isn't really a movie from my
0: childhood. I think I saw this maybe once ever. Probably scared me half to death and I haven't revisited it since. Mm -hmm. So I don't really have many tales to tell about this film. Mm -hmm. Um, Things I remember, again, are really abstract. Like the thing that I remember... remember the most is just these creepy threatening vaguely menacing like skyscapes Hmm. of just like clouds and colors and lightning yeah and other than that like the rest of it is an absolute blur. I mean, Falcor the Dragon is a timeless image yeah. that has proliferated outside of the film itself. But in terms of my distinct memories of it as a kid, it's just those like rumbling storm clouds with like the red coloring. That's the main thing I remember. And as soon as the film starts, that's what the titles are put over, isn't it? Like these, it's like a montage of skyscapes. And that's basically my memory of it. And as it gets towards the third act, like those skyscapes become more and more intense. So I think that's probably where I got that memory from.
1: Yeah, it's a really distinctive image, isn't it? That's the first thing that struck me when I started watching this movie is like, it's a really impactful image. So I'm not surprised that that lodged itself in your brain. It's a really impactful image, but it does have that... Fucking theme music playing over the top of it
0: Which (laughs) sort of ruins it slightly
1: The never ending story (laughs) Yeah oh man I was watching this movie with Martha And uh, as soon as that music kicked in She turned to me and she just went I love it already <laughs> so that shows yeah. you uh, what wavelengths we were both on when watching this film it's a Marmite moment isn't it you're either going to be like
0: I love this or you're immediately like nah uh, I was the latter ah. but it, it, it turned it around eventually but we'll get onto that how about you what do you remember
1: yeah so this one for me has a bit of a stronger fingerprint in my childhood to be honest with you because obviously it's not only a German movie but it's actually an adaptation of a German novel my mum hated this movie she absolutely hated it because she saw it as destroying her childhood yeah is it like a westernized bastardized version of the German original she just thought it destroyed her imagination of the book so you can see where my hipster snobbery comes from in that regard Uh, because I think I lifted that directly from her when I approached the Harry Potter movies oh yeah the Harry Potter movies that you refused to watch yeah 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 exactly exactly (laughs) I think that was directly a result of her influence with this movie but yeah so she hated this movie and I think that may have tarnished. My memory of it a little bit I saw it once or twice as a kid And I didn't remember very much about that experience I remembered Artax the horse Dying by getting stuck in some mud But I'm not sure if I remember that from the movie itself Or the cultural osmosis surrounding the movie Well I I even told my students at school That I was watching it this week Mm. for the podcast
0: And that was the first thing they picked up on. I mean, these kids were born in like, disgustingly, in like, 2008. (laughs) But they still remember that (laughs) moment. You know, so like it's obviously got some form of vintage to it.
1: Yeah, it's got a lot of cultural resonance. And I think the way it gets presented online is like the most traumatic moment of all of our childhoods. So I was actually really curious going into this movie to see what kind of impact that would have on me as an adult. But yeah, I remembered that. And I also remembered a big rock monster that also ate rocks. (laughs) Cannibal. Yeah, I remember thinking that was inherently unsettling (laughs) because I was like, he's eating rocks with his teeth uh, also made out of rocks so that just made me feel like he was just like eating teeth do you know what I mean it gave me that kind of like really unsettled uh, feeling oh, dear. but yeah um so I guess we've sort of started touching on our opinions of the movie why don't we get into what we actually enjoyed about this film yes can't wait Okay, Ollie, So, why don't you start us off? What did you enjoy about this movie? Well, yet again, we have to address the dead parent in the room. Don't <laughs>
0: yes, <we? laughs> yes, we because do. yet again, a film on our list starts with the addressing of a dead relative. Yeah, I know. What is this? What is this era? I don't. What is going on? We've sort of touched on it before and we came to the conclusion that it might be like production companies trying to be a bit edgy, but it's become more than that. I I really don't know why it is the case that all of these poor children in these
1: films have to have a dead family member. And how did this not impact us more? (laughs) How were we not literally (laughs) clinging to the trouser legs of our parent every waking second of the day? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, But yeah, unlike some of the other films that we've covered and yes, as you've mentioned, there are numerous movies that begin with the death of a parent for some reason... (laughs) Unlike a lot of the other movies that we've covered, I feel like death is of particular thematic relevance to this movie. And so I think the death of the parent is actually a jumping off point to explore a lot of more complex themes. But I want to hold off on discussing that in too much detail just yet. So why don't we start things off a little bit more simply? What else was there to enjoy in this movie?
0: Well, I think generally, I don't know if it was because it's been remastered, but the copy of this film on Amazon just looks delightful. It just looked really crisp and clean And the details in the mise-en-scene were really lovely Just generally the aesthetic of this film is marvellous
1: Oh yeah it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie. And it starts off, as we alluded to earlier, in that very first opening credits scene that admittedly has some very jarring music laid over the top of it. <laughs> but the visuals of the clouds and they're sort of these technicolor dynamic cloud shots look absolutely stunning. It's very psychedelic, these sort of like cloud time lapses, aren't they? Mm. And I'm not sure if it's actual photography or some kind of effect, but it looks absolutely gorgeous. And I just generally really really love the look of this film. And I think it goes beyond just the scenery. I mean, a lot of the scenery, the aesthetic of the scenery is achieved through these beautiful painted matte backgrounds. But it's also down to the set design, the mise-en-scene, as you say. Like, the world of this movie is just utterly charming. And at times, I would go so far as to say it is really beautiful. Yeah, I mean, it's
0: straight out of Dungeons
1: & Dragons for me. Mm. Like,
0: the painted images in d d books and general fantasy illustrations resemble a lot of the painted backdrops in this movie. It was just really nice to look at I think like tying into the beauty of the of the film is the puppetry as well mm-hmm. and not just the way they made the puppet characters feel real in their movements and in their gestures and in their mannerisms but also just the detail of the puppets themselves were just fantastic like I could imagine most of the budget actually probably went on animating Falcor because yeah. there's a shot of him where the focal point of the shot It's sort of a close-up of him, I guess. The focal point of it is obviously his face, and you've got people operating the blinking, Mm. the movement of the mouth, the movement of the tongue the movement of the lines on his face. But Mm. then out of focus in the background is his body because it's curled round. And you can see that someone's operating the breathing of the character as well. So like they've really gone to great lengths to make those puppets feel real. And they look real as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know if they were trying to make Falcor like really creepy though but they certainly succeeded if that was what they were attempting. Well I
0: I mean it's hard to not find any of the characters creepy in this film to be honest. Yeah that's true. I think he's meant to be a helper. A lot of the characters, the puppet characters seemed
1: benevolent to me. Oh yeah definitely and I'd actually say my
0: favourite one uh... I was going to ask you this, I was going to ask you what your favourite character was because I think they're so diverse the sort of
1: creatures in this film. I think it's worthy of discussion of which ones were your favourite. Falcor's a given, right? Falco definitely wasn't my favourite, to be honest with you, but in terms of, like, technically the way they animated that puppet, it's very impressive. I have two favourites, actually. I would say the racing snail is one of them, because (laughs) I just thought that was just a really cool concept, and it looked really cute and cuddly, and I loved... The giant tortoise. Yeah, the nihilistic turtle, I've called it in my notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like this giant tortoise, this ancient being that Atreyu seeks advice from. And she looks legitimately ancient. Yeah. And what was most impressive about that puppet is she's not only a character, but she's also a piece of the set. She's a mountain that Atreyu approaches and he only realises as he gets closer that it's in fact a tortoise. I just loved the look of that puppet. I thought it was fantastic. But to be honest with you, it wasn't even just like the main characters. There's a scene in the first meeting in Fantasia where they're trying to figure out how to save Fantasia and save the Empress. That's fucking nightmare fuel in that bit. It is, but I just loved the attention to detail because you have like representatives of all these different races of fantasia and they all look so interesting and distinct yeah and i think some of the ones that stood out to me were that there were these people with giant heads which looked terrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah they look like those What? what's that um wonder of the world easter island easter island yes yeah yeah they look like those right yeah definitely and uh there was also elephants and people with two faces on their heads or three or three two or three yeah it was mental <laughs> (laughs) So it's like a lot of effort that wasn't strictly necessary, but just adds so much to that scene and the universe of the film in general. It just makes the universe feel really rich just by having all these races convening in one space.
0: Yeah, well, it would have been easy. I mean, it would have been an easy win to just do elves, dwarves, men, orcs, Mm -hmm. but they've gone to absolute town and they've just come up with these endearing and horrifying races of people that have, yeah, like you said, three faces or are just one giant head on legs or, you know, ride supercharged snails (laughs) around. Like, it's really, it's really obscure. It sort of reminded me of Alice in Wonderland in Mm. its fantasy elements. Just these really oddball, quirky characters that are very idiosyncratic and because they're so different and unique, they're almost more believable. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Um, Did you have a favourite? Did you have a particular favourite? Yeah, my favourite was the nihilistic turtle who would say nothing but Um, What was it? Not that it matters, but that turtle was channeling prime me. I feel that turtle's pain. It's so old. It's just done with everything and nothing matters anymore. I really enjoyed that character. The fact that it kept sneezing because it's allergic to children. The amount that I resonated
1: with this character was actually quite (laughs) worrying. She also Um, says, I've not seen anyone for thousands of years and have started talking (laughs) to herself. (laughs) Love it. That character
0: for me was the best one. And like you said, they do really cool things with scale with that character as well because it's a giant turtle like giant in the literal sense of the word
1: and speaking of scale that segues quite nicely into um another aspect of the movie i really enjoyed which was the set design which throughout the film is just consistently excellent the sets Uh, have that same idiosyncratic uniqueness that the characters do as well. No one set is the same, and they all seem to represent different parts of this world. And uh, a lot of them use scale in a similar way because they rely on miniatures. A lot of the time, which, as we've spoken about in the past, is actually one of my favourite practical effects favorite ways of achieving those illusions of scale yeah i mean there was absolutely loads of lovely set pieces but my favorite set is probably the little gnome cave so at one (laughs) point in the movie atreyu uh visits these gnomes in their little gnome home and come on come on How has that broken you? Oh <laughs> you must be at the end of your rope today, mate. Fucking <laughs> okay, hell. Jesus Christ. Oh, you know,
0: like when you suddenly become aware of what you're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that just happened with me that you just said that phrase. It's just, yeah, it's killed me. Anyway, continue. The gnome home. Talk to me
1: about it. Yeah, it's just lovely and it's just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. It's just really lovely, and it's sort of emblematic of um, the wider qualities of the movie in terms of that mise-en-scene and that set design. And so when you go into this little domain, it's like all these little bubbling flasks, and there's a steaming cauldron, and there's this muted orange lighting, candles, loads of dusty scrolls, herbs hanging from the ceiling. They've put in so much effort to design this set in a way that tells you about these characters. Yeah, It, it felt to me, actually,
0: that set, it felt to me like a mix between yoda's cave mm. in star wars and the bfg's cave in the bfg yeah like it sort of was channeling those sorts of vibes and what they did quite nicely with that as well was you had atreyu was like a an onlooker from the outside because the scale is different obviously he's a he's only sort of like a teenage boy mm. and they're gnomes so it's that the sense of scale is nice because he's sort of like peering in and he's bigger than them and mm. it was just a, like a lovely little set piece. I agree with you. Yeah,
1: and that's one of the internal sets that I really love, but also a lot of the external shots which were achieved through using miniatures are lovely and I think a couple of my favourites are the ivory tower, uh, which is, you know, the palace that the Empress lives in. The external of that is gorgeous. There's just so many aspects of this movie that looked fantastic. I love the way the sphinxes looked. Mm. So at one point... Atriu has to make his way past these two Sphinx guards to progress on his journey. And they looked literally awesome. Like, they looked really imposing, glowing, magical, and literally awe-inspiring. And the fact that that feeling was achieved with what is likely to just be a couple of miniatures... Or a painting. Or a painting, yeah, is a really great technical achievement, in my
0: opinion. Uh, Yeah, I agree with you, actually. And I think that that coincides quite nicely with some of the true-to-life shots that they did i think i don't know where they filmed it but it felt very sort of like southern us of a Mm. sort of texas state some of these wide tracking shots of atreo as he's riding his horse across the desert plains and Mm. you see all these mountain ranges and things like they combine the fantasy elements of their set design with basically natural beauty and I think that works really nicely. I also want to pick up on the fact that, in a way, weirdly, the set that takes place within the school setting in the real world is almost as fantastical yeah. as Fantasia is. Like, he's reading that book in the school attic? Yeah. I think, I think it's labelled attic?
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And I, I actually picked up on that. Like, as soon as he entered into that attic, I, I wrote a note about how much I loved the look of that set. It's, like, really dusty and creepy, like his own little hidden character and at one point he's reading his book and and i was watching it with martha my partner and she just leaned over to me and goes is that a human skull behind him on that (laughs) shelf so he's in this (laughs) attic in this school and there's a literal human skull on the shelf behind him so they've managed to create this really gothic aesthetic in what would ordinarily be a mundane space and i think that works really well in the movie's favour because obviously a big thing that this movie does is it blurs the boundaries between the two realities of the movie increasingly as it goes on. So the fact that this space becomes increasingly gothic and increasingly haunting as the drama of Fantasia slowly unfolds is really fitting in a way. I just like the fact that there's a school attic. Yeah, I just
0: love that as a concept the fact that there is an attic that he could just get the key to because for some reason they hang the key up for the attic next to the door to the attic (laughs) yeah 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 totally
1: unsecured
0: (laughs) and then he goes up there and it's like there's a human skeleton on the wall and like a wolf's head yeah and various other sort of taxidermy animals it's really
1: fucking weird yeah and nobody's cleaned in years (laughs) yeah
0: it's like no one goes up there yeah it's madness but like it contributes effectively to the storytelling I, I really like the fact that he had the, the candles gradually burning down as he was reading mm. it's weird because you start in modern day America like his dad's blitzing a juice in a juicer he's making his breakfast in the morning and it's very sort of like mid 80s Spielberg-esque mm. white picket fence family and then very very
1: quickly it goes to this like you said absurdly gothic attic room in the school yeah and it's interesting that you picked up on the kitchen because I actually thought about about that as well because the kitchen scene which you're right is this mundane suburban static environment you know sterile environment it comes straight off the back of that credit sequence with the clouds where everything's moving <laughs> and dynamic yeah. It really hammers home the contrast between the world of the imagination and this sterile emotionless world that he's been inhabiting with his dad and his dad even says to him in that scene you need to get your head out of the clouds yeah was it like feet planted firmly on the ground or something like that yeah something like that so there is this immediate juxtaposition between these two worlds being created by the movie which then slowly disintegrates as the narrative progresses and i just thought that was really really excellent and i think actually Actually, Ollie, we should probably go on to just discuss the way we perceived the themes of this movie because I feel like we're more or less falling over ourselves to do so. So, yeah, what were some of the thematic elements that jumped out to you in this movie? Well, um, I
0: couldn't help but start to read this in a weirdly Freudian way. And I don't want to be one of those sort of like hipster film critics who tries to apply gratuitous film criticism to what is essentially a kid's movie. But I think that actually it goes beyond subtle at points in pointing to this sort of, I don't want to say obsession, but the relationship the protagonist has with his deceased mother is to me like quite a troubling one. And it's explored in this sort of pseudo-sexual way. Um, particularly with the mise-en-scene of the Empress's ivory tower. I think there's lots of sort of sexual imagery going on there. The fact that, like, for his fantasy to come to a close, he has to call the Empress the name of his mother. And just a lot of the dialogue to me jumped out as being, like, overtly sexualized and not in like a subtle unintentional way it all felt very deliberate to me it did actually make me appreciate the film a lot more than maybe i would have done because i was really intrigued by this sort of subtext that i was reading into that's always the sign of a good film isn't it like when you when you can apply some sort of like lofty ideology to the film to enhance it i think that's the sign of a a good filmmaker and a good film Mm. and that's sort of what i read into it i don't know it may just be me Mm. It may just be me, but like, that's how I I read it. And I do have another idea, but I'm going to let you interject a little bit. But I think the first one that I read into is this sort of like strangely Freudian. He's grieving over his deceased mother, but he's also sort of obsessed at the same time with her. Mm. I don't know. What do you make of that?
1: Well, it's interesting because I didn't really get a Freudian reading from the movie, but I think that is a valid reading to make, especially because the movie places so much emphasis on the idea of dreams. Obviously, like, psychoanalysis was basically completely obsessed. Obsessed with dreams. And this movie really does, as I said, blur the boundaries between the dream world and reality and the world that we inhabit as the viewer as well. So, yeah, I think that's totally valid. But I didn't get a Freudian reading from the movie per se. But what I did get was that this movie, in terms of its thematic elements, is very much an allegory for grief and the processing of the emotions that come with grief. This fantasy narrative is a way for Bastion, the protagonist, to process his grief. So in accompanying Atreyu on his journey and going through this world of Fantasia, he's being empowered to confront these abstract enemies, such as the Sadness. So he enters the Swamps mm. of Sadness, which is where Atreo loses his horse, and the Nothing, which is the big malevolent force in the movie. I felt like these abstract antagonists that the world of Fantasia was presenting to him were basically metaphors for the very real emotions that were being brought on by the death of his mother, which he, in the real world, had been under unable to process because he lives with a father who is not emotionally available to him. Yeah, his dad seems very much almost in denial over the whole thing, doesn't he?
0: Yeah. Very stiff, upper lip, sort of carry-on-regardless attitude that doesn't really sit with his sensitive... Son.
1: Well, yeah, his whole attitude, his father's whole attitude is basically, we need to move on from this. We need to get our heads out of the clouds and we need to move on from this. And obviously the way grief works is you can't just hide from the emotions. And it was implied that he was doing that before, you know, he was hiding away from the world and burying his head in these books which um were different from the never-ending story because they weren't real according to the uh, bookshop owner that he stole the book from the never-ending story is real whereas everything else is not real so his journey through the never-ending story is empowering him to confront the necessary emotions he needs to deal with in order to healthily process his grief it makes them into tangible malevolent forces for him to overcome and not to run away from and I think that's just an absolutely wonderful allegory yeah I will say though like I agree with that reading wholeheartedly
0: but i think the film tragically undermines that wonderful theme by the ending. And we'll get onto that, but I'll just allude to it now. Like the ending is basically just like, oh yeah, it's all about him like destroying his bullies. End of story. Yeah, yeah, it's bullshit. It's a bullshit sanitized ending for something that is actually very lofty and intelligent and complex. And it's completely undermined by the last five minutes, which is a real shame.
1: Yeah, I'd 100% agree. And uh, just to round off my thoughts on the themes of the movie, I think where the movie is at its most ambitious is where it actually implicates the audience in bastion's mm. grieving process you know so it's created this allegory for grief and at one point when the worlds between the real world and fantasia have completely dissolved the empress is saying to atreo bastion has been sharing your adventures he is the mm. human boy he's been following you and just as he is sharing your adventures others are sharing his so the movie makes direct reference to To the fact that we as an audience Are accompanying this story Within a story
0: We're complicit in his journey basically
1: Yeah exactly and what that means On a thematic level is that it's inviting The audience to consider their own feelings Of loneliness, of grief Of depression, of isolation And to overcome them With its protagonists and I think that's A hugely ambitious thing for a children's movie To do. Yeah for sure And as I said earlier if there was ever a valid reason To present the death of a parent at the beginning of a children's movie. <laughs> like this is yeah. it because it not only presents that scenario passively, it invites you to to process those feelings along with its protagonist and I think that is the crowning jewel of this movie. Like I think that's what makes it special to be fair. And it's emphasised isn't it in
0: the ending, well the final act with the Empress because what eventually occurs is that she's talking directly to the audience because there's a basically a fourth wall break where mm-hmm. she's looking directly it's like big close up mm. of the character. She's crying she's looking straight down the lens and she's talking directly to the audience so there's an inclusion there that really adds emphasis to that reading that you've given about dealing with grief and it makes the spectator sort of a part of that narrative yeah which actually like yeah is the most powerful
1: moment in the film like fuck the horse dying like that moment there is the important moment i think yeah absolutely and just uh, as a side note i know that in our episodes we normally tend to give a little bit more narrative context for the movies we discuss so we go oh when this happens and then this happens i think this you know we sort of try to lay out the scenes as best as we can for whoever's listening that hasn't seen the movie in a while but with this i think that's actually not that possible because a lot of the thematic elements are so complex so we're kind of taking it as a given that you understand who these characters are and what their role in the narrative is also the the narrative And the characters themselves are, like,
0: utterly chaotic. Yeah. I called it a fever dream in my one-line synopsis, and it is literally that. It's just sort of like a montage of different images that assault you for 90 minutes so it's quite difficult to pinpoint exact moments it all sort of blends and merges into one so i think it's really worth just watching it as an entire entity and then applying those ideas to it
1: and on that note ollie while we were off mike you actually said you identified some uh, political subtext in this movie as well so do you want to go into that a little bit more
0: yeah just a little bit like i didn't actually know prior to watching it like the thing that gave it away for me anyway was the fact that the title sequence was loaded with germs. German names, mm. So I was like, okay, this has probably got some form of German influence. And to know that it's a US and West German collaboration mm. started to make a lot of sense to me because basically, like you said earlier, the predominant antagonist in this movie is the sort of abstract thing they call the nothing. yeah, And it's like this dark cloud that is destroying the fantasy world. And the justification for that is they say at the end, that horrible like wolf character mm. sort of says that everyone has lost hope hope everyone has lost their imagination has lost their dreams and that is why the nothing is able to destroy fantasia and i think that just had a really poignant correlation to what was going on politically Mm. in the 1980s in germany the iron curtain and the rise and fall of the soviet union and the fact that you've got like people who have been separated by this concrete wall who were maybe close neighbors but are now sort of polarized in terms of their political opinions it's a point in history where people have maybe lost a little bit of hope Mm. in the future and in human progress and i think it was a quite a nice child-friendly way of addressing that issue
1: yeah yeah i agree and you could even read it as an atomic allegory as well because this is like peak cold war right exactly if you wanted to really transplant the idea of the nothing into the real world um it's a nuclear explosion right yeah
0: for sure and like the fact that you have at the end images of like atomized dirt flying through space like there was just a lot of apocalyptic imagery and i think it's very appropriate to the time period particularly from a german perspective like i can see that as being quite powerful yeah definitely Definitely. So was that about
1: it for you on good stuff?
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll just rattle off like one or two other things that I won't go into depth on, but I really like, just to reiterate, love the changing of scale and the sense of scale. Mm -hmm. The puppeteering, just to reiterate, is second to none. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think I've seen better puppeteering, maybe other than Jurassic Park in our films so far. Really, really beautiful. Yeah. I also really thought that the child acting was convincing, Mm -hmm. which is rare. For this era particularly, but I thought they did a really good job with that. So just on a surface level, the film is rich in detail and is interesting to look at Mm -hmm. before you even start getting into the nitty-gritty of ideology and themes. So yeah, it's just it's well worth a watch on those on those fronts, I think.
1: Okay, great. Well, on that note, shall we move on to discuss some of the things we maybe enjoyed a little bit less in this movie? Yes, let's. He doesn't understand that he's the one who has the power to stop it. You simply can't imagine that one little boy could be that important. Okay, Ollie, why do you start us off? What were some things you didn't enjoy in this movie?
0: So I think the main problem for me was a technical issue that the film tends to have in that they have these very elaborate puppets and these very elaborate characters that other than having them in medium close-up, talking passively to the human characters are basically immobile. So you sort of have to, as a spectator, fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to describe, but it's basically like, They can't animate the puppet to make it look like the character is moving dynamically. So they have to do these strange sort of cuts to medium close up and close up to make it look like it's moving. And that was really jarring because you're so enamored with the puppet characters in their close ups because they are so well animated Mm. that when you come to the wider shots where they should be moving around the scene, they just don't really do that very well.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. And I would actually say the most egregious example of that for me that really took me out of the movie was Gamort. Who is the wolf character There's a point where he's like flying through the air To attack Atreyu And that's when it looked like at its most stiff to me. Yeah,
0: he should be leaping through the air and we should have two or three cuts of Mm. the fight between the characters but they couldn't have the fight between the characters so it's just like, let's throw the puppet through the air Mm. and then cut to Atreyu getting up covered in blood because he stabbed him in the chest but we don't see him do that, we don't see any movement or conflict between the two characters physically, it just sort of like here's the start of the fight and then we cut to the end of the fight.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's
0: nothing dynamic in the middle which is happens pretty much throughout and I think you're going to talk about this shortly, but that really is detrimental to the sort of engagement of the story in terms of pace. Yeah. Because basically it's a tray walking from one scene to the next talking passively to a puppet and then moving on.
1: Yeah, and I think I can be a little bit forgiving about this because obviously, even though it was the most expensive movie to be made outside of the Soviet Union and the US at the time, it still feels like they're working within these constraints. So we might go, oh, you know, maybe they could have made the scenes more dynamic through using stop motion or this and that. But the reality is they probably just had to do the best with what they had. Yeah, And I think they do a really remarkable job.
0: They do, but like... They've obviously set their priorities in one direction. It's like, we want to spend our money and our time making the puppets look real when mm. they're talking to each other and we want to make the set design really engaging and beautiful yeah but because they've spent so much time doing that they've had to really skimp on the rest of it there should have been really a bit more addressing of a balance between the two mm-hmm. like i would be okay with the puppet not breathing <laughs> yeah. not not having the animation of breathing taking place so they could afford maybe to make it look like it was engaging with the environment
1: a little bit more yeah authentically Yeah, yeah, I totally get what you mean. And I totally get what you mean about it taking you out of the narrative and messing with the pacing, which, as you sort of implied, was one of the main issues I had with the movie, was the pacing and the structural issues in the film. And I'm going to use two points to address this. The first is I'm going to talk about the death of Artax, which is the horse at horse. So at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned the fact that that was one of my strong memories of the film was the death of this character having a massive impact on me. And when it got to the death of the horse, it really caught me off guard because i did not expect it to happen this quickly i think as a standalone scene it's powerful in terms of the thematic elements of the movie but from a character-driven perspective it feels really abrupt That was the first time in the movie that the pacing felt off to me. I would have liked to have spent a little bit more time with those characters before we lost Artax so that his death would actually mean more. He's literally killed within five minutes of being introduced, which which really lessens (laughs) the impact of his loss, to be honest with you. And that was actually quite disappointing to me and what I said there that out of context that scene is a very emotionally driven and powerful scene that speaks to my main criticism of the movie which is that it seems like a series of encounters that are strung together by moving the main character from one encounter to the next Mm. and so the scenes Atreyu finds himself in don't really seem to have any real effect on each other. It's just a case of him arriving somewhere and being told, you have to go here or else being brought there by Falcor.
0: Yeah, it's very paint-by-numbers fantasy quest type narrative, isn't it? Yes. It reminds me of like an RPG video game and you're doing just like loads of different side quests and gathering bits and pieces for certain characters. They don't have any correlation to each other, but they sort of just like... Push the character in one direction, but they're not really coherent in any sort of fathomable way. Yeah. Which is, again, not just a narrative problem, but a pacing problem because mm-hmm. it just becomes slightly repetitive in the fact that it's just a Atreyu talking to another quirky puppet about something and then you move on to the next one where it's the same thing.
1: Yeah, and in that sense, each character interaction feels very isolated within its own space, which takes you out of the scale of the universe we're inhabiting. So it's a collection of very rich micro-universes rather than a single vast one. It's a series of charming vignettes. Yeah, I
0: called it a montage earlier. Yeah, That's what it feels like. It's just sort of like a collection of images that are put together to sort of like a tenuous narrative thread
1: yeah the main comparison i made in my head to something that does this more effectively was obviously lord of the rings yeah we've finally addressed
0: the fact that lord of the rings exists
1: yes and i think it's a very valid comparison or it's a very valid contrast in this case because what i was thinking in my head was that narrative thread in the two towers where legolas gimli and Aragorn are chasing the uruk-hai to try and get Merry and Pippin back, right? Mm-hmm. So you see the uruk marching through these sort of scenes with Merry and Pippin in tow and then cut to our three heroes and they're finding clues and evidence of the uruk presence in their scene, you know? yeah. So it's not like these things are happening in isolation from each other. There's a real sense of connectivity between these two scenarios, which yeah. are in essence their own narratives. And that's what this movie seems to really be like lacking uh, and that would be probably the biggest criticism I could level against it other than the ending which we have already touched <laughs> on earlier but Ollie why don't you talk to me a little bit about this ending
0: uh it left such a sour taste in my mouth yeah like, it really did because I finished the movie I pressed off on the remote and I was like for fuck's sake yeah I was on board and I was actually really interested in talking about it and then the ending happened I was like our big-budget Hollywood executives got in the way again because it's basically just a revenge narrative that it becomes at the end yeah. for no apparent reason. And I think the beauty of this film lied in the fact that it had this beautiful synthesis of the fantasy world and the real world. Mm. And there's this great moment near the end where they blend together and you're not quite sure what's the fantasy world and what's reality and then there's a distinctive separation of those two things. I'm talking very ambiguously, but if you watch it, you'll sort of get what I mean. And then it just ends with our protagonist on the top of a dragon chasing the bullies. Yes. And it just, it doesn't make any logical sense for that to happen. Yeah. And it devalues literally the entirety of the movie before it.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a point where we can maybe explain in a little bit more detail what's happening narratively. So what happens at the end of the movie is Bastion gets brought into the universe of Fantasia and Bastion just about manages to stop Fantasia from being wiped out of existence and he's speaking to the Empress and she's holding a grain of sand in her hand and she's like... This is all that remains of Fantasia. You just about managed to save us. This is all that remains, you know, and it's a beautiful image. You know, it's a beautiful, poignant ending. Yeah, because they're in a
0: black, like the whole um, set is black. Mm. They're just basically in this nether zone. It's almost like limbo and they're both facing each other and it's very intimate and they're both emotionally engaged Mm. and you're really on board at that moment. You're like, wow, this is a really powerful ending to this film because it just at the moment of um, Annihilation, he's managed to bring it back from the brink of destruction And
1: then then... she gives him a wish, right? She gives him as many wishes as he wants. This grain of sand can grant him as many wishes as he wants. What a beautiful metaphor that is as
0: well. Your imagination can turn a grain of sand into an entire universe if you want it to.
1: Like that is a beautiful thing to tell children. Yeah, exactly. But then she says, you have as many wishes as you want. What are your wishes? Hard cut to him riding on the back of Falco the Dragon, (laughs) chasing down the bullies that made him jump into a bin at the beginning of the movie. And it's just like, yeah, like fist pump 80s movie ending. I hate it. I hate it. It's like a committee ending, isn't it? It's a committee going, we need a freeze frame breakfast club moment at the end of this fucking (laughs) movie. And actually, I think it's interesting because there are probably numerous ways that we could change that to make it more effective. So on that note, why don't we discuss some of the changes we would like to make to this movie? Let's do it.
0: I like children. For breakfast?
1: (laughs) Never. I'm a love dragon. My name is Falcor.
0: So... As is custom, we are going to now discuss potential changes we would make to improve this movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to ask you, Paddy, what would you do in terms of changes, given the chance?
1: Well, as we sort of alluded to earlier, the main change we have to make to this movie is the ending. And I've been thinking long and hard about how you could end this really abstract and beautiful allegorical narrative to a close, how could you bring this to a close in a coherent way? And I think, to be honest with you, the first thing that happens when uh, Bastion is granted his wish, is that he wishes Fantasia back into existence so you see him flying on the back of Falcor and him looking down at all of Fantasia and all the characters that we've seen throughout the movie. uh, Who've died. Yeah, who have ceased to exist. Are all alive again and doing their thing and and all very happy it would seem. Eating rocks. Yeah, eating rocks. Uh, Oh yeah, side note, side note, how is it that the saddest scene in the whole movie is the rock monster who is on the cusp of fading into non-existence? These hands look strong, but they're not. Yeah, why couldn't I hold on to my friends? It's so i <laughs> I never thought I'd see a rock cry, but goddamn, goddamn. Um, oh yeah, so he's seeing all these characters because he's wished Fantasia back into existence. And I think that can stay. Well, to me, that would be the
0: ending. Just reinstate all the characters. Like that is a that is a cop-out ending, but it's better than what we've got here.
1: Well, I would actually go one step further than that. Firstly, I wouldn't have Bastion on Falcor's back. No fucking way. I would just have him, she goes, What's your wish? And then it cuts to just these sweeping shots of Fantasia. So the implication is that Fantasia has been brought back. And then at the end of the movie, this is how I would actually end it. Final scene of the movie. You see all these scenes of Fantasia, cut back to Bastion. He puts the book away. He closes the book, puts it in his bag, leaves the attic and he goes into class. Mm -hmm. He's been left behind at school after school has closed. Maybe you could have it that he was there all night reading this book. And there's a narrative thread in the movie where his dad is saying, you're never going to class. You're never doing your homework, you know, because he's clearly removed himself from the real world because he's struggling to process his grief. So he's numbing himself. So I think a lovely way of ending the movie would have been to have Bastion exit the attic, school has started again, and he just walks into class and shuts the door, and you see him taking a seat and raising his hand. End of the movie. That's good. I like that. I like that. He's begun to process the emotional turmoil that's going on within him, and now he feels confident enough and empowered enough to reintegrate himself into his life.
0: Yeah, I really like that. I think that would bring a... Nice close to the theme of dealing with grief. You could even have him, like, passing the book to someone else mm. who he thinks might need it. His dad. Yeah, his, he gives it to his dad to read, or yeah. um, he gives it back to the librarian, and then you see, as Bastian leaves that bookshop, another child walks in, Mm. something like that. But I just, I cannot get over the fact, and this is going to tie into whether or not I recommend this movie, that ending just destroys everything that is great about this film. (laughs) And like the two things that we've just basically off the cuff discussed in terms of what we would change about the ending are infinitely better than what actually happens. And that is a really damning... Indictment on what the filmmaking process is like in mainstream filmmaking, because it's definitely, like you said, it is an ending by committee. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell that people have gone, just tie the bullying narrative up, because that's the one the kids are gonna remember. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's really not. Like the kid, like, that is a throwaway thing that happens. I think you end your movie by tying up the threads of the important themes. Yes. And this film
1: totally does not do that. And it's deeply, deeply frustrating. Yes, I, I would agree. And on that note, Ollie, <laughs> I suppose there is only, uh, there's only one question left to ask you. Do you think you need rose-tinted specs to appreciate this movie? Or do you think it holds up on its own merit? Oh, man, this is tough. Firstly, for me, personally,
0: I didn't have a huge nostalgic attachment to it in the first place. Mm. And secondly... I think that 95% of it, maybe you don't. But then the last part, which is arguably the most important part, (laughs) you really do need goggles to appreciate it. So I'm going to say you don't. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that is because I found myself for the first time in this exercise in futility that is this (laughs) podcast, for the first time I found myself applying adult complex... Film theory to a kids' movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't think, obviously, I would have been able to do that when I was a child. So yes. I think for that reason, you don't need them but the caveat is you need it for the fucking ending because the ending is bullshit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, the ending is probably what the majority of people have rose-tinted goggles about. A lot of people probably do remember that ending. I'm going to say that you don't need rose-tinted specs to enjoy this movie. And here's why. And I'm actually going to tie it into the themes of the movie. Because if you're talking about grief, which again, for me, is the theme that resonated the most, grief isn't about getting somewhere, it's not about arriving at any sort of ending where you're suddenly whole again. It's about the process. It's about the journey. Yeah. And that's my very pretentious way of saying, because the journey of the movie itself was worthwhile, I'm not too fussed about the ending being bad. Yes, it's bad. Okay. And yes, it really is frustrating and it has the potential to undermine Uh, the themes of the movie. But because I found the movie to be so rich, especially from a discussion standpoint, those last five minutes didn't take away from my enjoyment. So yeah, I don't think you need Rose Tinted Specs to enjoy it. I agree that the ending is shite, but I will give it a pass because I thought, Other than that, it's a really, really special movie.
0: Yeah, I think that is an apt conclusion
1: to the story that is (laughs) never-ending. Yes, yes. (laughs) Also, if you ignore the ending of the movie, it truly is a never-ending story. (laughs)
0: I'll tell you what, right, just watch it on repeat, but cut the last five minutes, and you're golden.
1: Yeah, yeah. Eject the metaphorical VHS (laughs) just before that scene, and you're fine. (laughs) You'll have a great time. But yeah, I guess we've reached the end there. So before we go, I just need to say thank you to Dilettante for letting us use their song, My Dress, as our theme tune. You can follow them at Dilettante Songs on social media. You can follow us at Rose Tinted Movies on Instagram. Do please also subscribe to this podcast. Give us a review. Give us a like. Tell your friends. We really want to try and get the word out. We want to spoil as many childhoods as we possibly can. Yes, we've not spoiled nearly enough childhoods at this point. Um, But yes, in the meantime... I have been Paddy and I have been Ollie and we have been Rose Tinted. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all next time.